Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Turn with me to Psalm 119, and particularly to that ninth strophe, beginning with verse 65 through verse 72. I'd like to read that for us. Uh, If you've got it in front of you, look at it, and let's get that back in our minds a bit. You have done well by your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me the goodness of insight and knowledge, because I believe in your commands. Before I was humbled, I was wandering, but now I keep your word. You are good, and you do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant ones have smeared me with lies, but I keep your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are gross like fat, but I delight in your law. It has been good for me that I was humble, that I might learn your statutes. The instruction of your mouth has been better for me than thousands of gold and silver. Let's pray just a moment again. Our Father, as we've said before, we do not want to come to your word without looking to you to give to us your Holy Spirit to help us understand, to give us enlightenment, and to instruct us. If we are ever to be like you, you are going to have to make us that. And part of it is for us to understand. So help us in this hour, and we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Yesterday we were looking at the Psalm 119 and this particular ninth strophe in relation to the whole. We said when you come to this one, you find that the psalmist is exalting in the goodness of God. He says... uh, Lord, you have done well by your servant. He finds a restful quietness in his soul in the goodness of God. If you look at this, I think it's fair to use those adjectives about it. There's a quietness here, a restfulness of spirit, and a restfulness of spirit in the Lord. Now, we raised the question yesterday, does this mean that he never had had any problems? And we said, no, it didn't mean that at all. Or did it mean that he had had some problems, but they were all solved and all were in the past? We said no, and we ran down through what the psalm reveals about the circumstances of the psalmist. He was a stranger on earth, an alien, and couldn't go home. He was held in scorn and contempt by insolent men. The power figures that were over him were plotting against him. He said, I know what sorrow is, and he said, I live in the shadow of potential disgrace all the time. He said, arrogant men have taunted me and are saying cutting things about me. He says, they hold me in derision, and they besmear me with lies and attempt to subvert me with guile. He says, I'm persecuted. He says, the arrogant ones, Zadim, look for ways to trap me so they can destroy me. I'm sorely afflicted with plenty of enemies who despise me 
and trouble and anguish befall me. But it was in the middle of all of that that he said, uh, Lord, you've done well by your servant. You're good and you do good. Now, how is it that a man with those kind of troubles sings? He has evidently found a secret that many of us have not learned, or if we have, we've known it on occasion, but it has not been a pattern of life for us. This is the secret that I think Paul illustrates in the New Testament when we see him in prison in Philippi. And you will remember that night, having been mercilessly beaten, he and Silas are singing the praises of God. And uh, they are victorious under those circumstances. And song is a way of expressing their faith in that kind of desperate hour. It's the kind that uh, Saul was writing about when he wrote to the Philippians. You will remember when he wrote, he was a prisoner in Rome. And he was awaiting trial, and that trial was to mean his death, whether he knew it or not. And he is writing to them, and he says, I've learned in whatever state I am, be content. <laughs> whether I'm in manacles or whether I'm free. Uh, whether I'm able to do the things that I would prefer to do or whether I'm having things done to me that I would not prefer. I still can rejoice because I have learned to be content wherever I am, no matter what my circumstances. Now, it's an interesting secret when the outside doesn't determine the inside, isn't it? And that's exactly what he's talking about. And this is what the psalmist is speaking about. I found something inside that is, in, that is more powerful in determining me than that which is outside. And so the outside is not my determinant. It made me think as I was thinking about it. Paul, you will remember in the fourth chapter of that Philippian letter says, I've learned to be content wherever I am. He said, so I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Now, through most of my life, I interpreted that passage on the basis of the, my uh, cultural context instead of the biblical context. And so for years, I thought that was a great text to give people to encourage them to know that they could do most anything in the name of Christ. And we thought in terms of exploits, you know. But really, what the text is saying is, I can, I can be victorious under any circumstances. I've learned the secret. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Now, as I was thinking about that, I remembered a story which I read, a biography many years ago. Do not have the book anymore and cannot even remember the man's name. But he was a British missionary who went to Patagonia, southern tip of the South American peninsula. And it was a brutal climate, very cold, bitter, and he depended upon supplies from England which came to him. And uh, some of those supplies did not come through. Some of his friends in England became concerned, and so they finally, much too late, got a ship together and shipped some things out to him. And when they found him, he was, he was dead. He froze to death. He was writing in his journal as he died. And the last words written in his journal were, Oh, the goodness of God. Me. Now, I don't know about you, but I suspect that is a better witness to the grace of God than any flashy miracle that you could ever produce. Because what everybody's looking for is something that can get into, their, into his or her heart. 
that can give that kind of victory. Now, the psalmist apparently had found the key to that. And so in the midst of conflict, difficulty, he could sing. Now, I think, and this is the reason I am interested in this particular strophe, uh, is that I think he relates it some way or other to the matter of humility. Now, you will notice in verse 67, Before I was humbled, I was wandering, but now I keep your word. And in verse 71, he says, It has been good for me that I was humbled. Now, there are some translations that translated afflicted and uh, synonyms for that. I've come to where I like the, the term humbled here because it speaks to what I believe is a biblical virtue that oftentimes we forget. It has been good for me that I was humbled, that I might learn your statutes. Now, the verb that is used here is a Hebrew verb, which we mentioned yesterday, anah, and from it you get a, uh, the adjective humble or meekly or meek or low. You also get the noun for humility or for meekness and so forth. It is a word, interestingly enough, which is used about Moses. When in Numbers 12 we are told that he was the humblest man on the face of the earth. Now what it says is he was humble from all other men exceedingly. Uh, you get to the place where you sort of like the, the, the crudeness from our point of view of the style of the Hebrew. He was humble from all other men exceedingly. We translate it sometimes meekness, and that's a good, good translation and uh, uh, has good connotations for us, New Testament connotations. It's interesting that uh, the word which is used there in the Septuagint and, you know, one of the things I wish we had in our circles is somebody who was an expert on the Septuagint who could take us through the movement from the Old Testament to the New Testament Greek because the word which is used here in the Septuagint, it's the same root which is used in for they shall inherit the earth. It is the same word which is used when he says, come unto me, all you that labor heavy laden, I will give you rest. I yoke upon you and learn of me for I am. And this is the word, Kraus. I am meek and lowly, tapenos in heart. I am meek and lowly in heart. Now you know immediately that uh, Moses is, as far as I can see, in all of the scripture, he really is the giant of all the giants. I think if I were to have to pick out the greatest man that ever lived, I think I would certainly pick Moses, a man that sort of stands uh, Himalayas above every, above all the rest of the mountains. He was that kind of a man. Now, what is the supreme thing that's said about him? He was meek. He was humble. He uh, had this lowly character. There was something that he had been humbled. Now, in the Old Testament, it's interesting that this uh, it's, this terminology is used to refer to a special class of people in the Old Testament. If, you, if you've got any questions about anything I say, catch John Oswald. He knows far more about this than I do. But they are the anav, the humble. This becomes a synonym for piety in the Old Testament. A symbol for a class of people that Yahweh has a special interest in. They are his people. 
You will find in a number of the Psalms that we are told that God never forgets them. Now, it's a, it's a marvelous thing for God not to forget you. Because when the, that's negative, but the positive that he remembers you, all sorts of things are possible. <laughs> when he remembers you, a 90-year-old woman can have a child. <laughs> when he remembers you, a barren Hannah can have a child. When he remembers you, all sorts of miracles can take place. And he says, the scripture says in Psalm 94, God doesn't forget the humble. God doesn't forget the meek, the lowly. Now, Isaiah tells us that he has pity on them. He has compassion on them. There is a special emotional response in God of concern, and he wishes them well and wants to bless them. He, In fact, Psalm 34 says he saves the humble. He doesn't save the proud. He doesn't save the Zadim, but he does save these that are humble. He delivers them when they have problems, and he bestows favor on them. So uh, they're a special class in the Old Testament, and God's got his eyes on them, and he's perpetually looking for the meek and for the lowly. And so it's not surprising that uh, we get that text in Zechariah 9, 9, Behold, your king comes to you. <laughs> Meekly. <laughs> That's the one thing you never expect out of a king, is it? <laughs> You see, it's a different kind of king. It's not the kind of king that the world knows about. It is, and in the Old Testament, this word, this the, the language that comes from this verb, ana, it comes to be applied to the class that is the opposite of the Zadim, and they are the arrogant ones. And you will notice in the Psalms that the arrogant ones are the enemies of the psalmist. The arrogant ones, the Zadim, have smeared me with lies, but I kept your precepts, I, I keep your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are gross like fat, but I delight in your law. Now, these are the uh, people that God loves, and uh, that's a strange thing. I want to read for you a paragraph out of old Richard Trench's Synonyms of the New Testament, just to illustrate the fact that... Uh, the value system of Scripture is very different from our value system. It is where he deals with uh, the uh, words that, uh, related to tapenos and to proud. He says, The work for which Christ's gospel came into the world was no less than to put down the mighty from their seat and to exalt the humble and the meek. You will remember yesterday we said there are those who put power and brokenness in opposition to each other. The people who have the power, their business is to break the others and get them submissive. But biblically, power and brokenness in that sense are not antonyms, they're synonyms. And that the person who is the broken one, the yielded one, the submissive one, is the one who's going to win. Let me take you back to the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the... Who's going to inherit the earth? It's not the power possessors. It's not the people with the positions. 
is not the people with the clout, it's going to be the meek and the lowly. The work for which Christ's gospel came into the world was no less than to put down the mighty from their seat and to exalt the humble and the meek. It was then only in accordance with this its mission that it should dethrone the heathen virtue, megalosukia. Who wants to define that for me? Megalo, greatness. Sukia, psyche. The guys with the big egos. <laughs> uh, the power players. It was then only in accordance with this its mission that it should dethrone the heathen virtue. Because in Greece, that was a virtue. In the Bible, it is the exact opposite. So he said it was then only in accordance with this its mission that it should dethrone the heathen virtue, megalosukia, and set up the despised Christian grace, tapenosophrosune, lowly-mindedness, humble-mindedness is what he is saying is the Christian grace that sets up in its room in the place of megalosukia stripping that of the honor it had unjustly assumed, delivering this from the dishonor which is unjustly had clung to it hitherto, and in this direction advancing so far that a Christian writer has called this last not merely a grace, meekness, humility, not merely a grace, but the casket, or treasure house in which all other graces are contained. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I found that very interesting. And indeed, not the grace only, but the very word, in this case, he's speaking of the second word used in Matthew 11, the very word, tapenosophrosune, which is one of the Septuagint's words used for the word which is used in this 119th Psalm, he says, uh, but the very word is itself a fruit of the gospel. No Greek writer used it before the Christian era, nor apart from the influence of Christian writers after. Uh, the value system under which we're supposed to live is a different value system from the world. And it has to do with an attitude of heart and an attitude of mind, and it's what the psalmist is getting at when he says, before I was humbled, I wandered. Now, why do we wander? It's because of our self-will. What is it that causes us to depart from him? And we want what we want instead of wanting what he wants. And we do it in reference, we act in reference to ourselves instead of in reference to God. And when we do, then we find ourselves away from God. He said, uh, it's been good for me that I was humbled, that I might learn your ways. You know, it is a different system of values, isn't it? I found myself thinking, where would you find a biblical pattern in the Old Testament for this that the psalmist might have seen or known so he would understand the two-story life of David. Do you remember when David of 
the people of Israel so that David had become a popular folk hero. In fact, he was the had the most appeal of any of the heroes of the day, apparently. Very striking young man after the experience with Goliath and after some of the other victories that he had uh, soldiers in. Remember that the people were chanting, Saul is slain his thousands, but David is slain his ten thousand. So that the populace was saying, David's ten times as great as our king. And that was hard on Saul's ego. And so Saul said, I have a competitor, I have a rival. And in monarchies, the only thing to do is David. So Saul begins a program to destroy, to kill David. He's not beyond killing to protect his position. And you will remember as David is fleeing, you remember in the 24th chapter of 1 Samuel, David and his men are in the inner recesses of a cave. And apparently Saul comes into the cave as he's pursuing him, not knowing that David is there. And while he's there, you will remember that uh, David cuts off a part of his uh, cloak. And uh, But before he does, uh, his second-in-command turns to him and says, The Lord above has delivered your enemy into your hand. I will pin him to the ground with my spear, and you will be free. And David says, oh, no. Now, do you think David wanted to be king? If I understand David psychologically, I don't think there's any question about it. I suspect when you are the most gifted person around, you know it whether you admit it or not. You know, you get any ten people together in an evening discussion, and before it's over with, you rank yourself where you stand in that bunch. And there's nothing you can do to keep yourself from doing it. Are you going to tell me that David didn't know what kind of gifts he had? I don't mean that he had perfect knowledge, but I think he had a sense of destiny. He had it. Later, when he took Goliath on, he's already been told by the prophet, Chip is within the will of God. Why not take it? Did you know the will of God can be wrong for you if you get it the wrong way? You know, you wouldn't have to do much thinking to build a case for putting the spear through that guy. Saul, he's, a, he's, a, he's in his heart a murderer. God has departed from him. The kingdom deserves a spiritual man as the head of it. I can be that. But David says, if I'm to be king, God has to put me there. And he keeps his hand off of it. Now you will remember that happened again. You will remember that in the 26th chapter, you get a similar story. And uh, I'm sure it broke Saul's heart when he heard David cry out to him and explain that he had intention of laying his hand on him. He couldn't. God within his heart wouldn't let him. No matter how much he wanted it, he would not take anything if it were out of the will of God, and he wouldn't lift his hand to get anything that was not the will of God for him. Now, uh, while I was fiddling with some of that, I ran across a familiar passage which if I had ever worked my way through it in the Hebrew, I 
do not have any memory of it. I must have some time, but uh, it's that passage where you will remember in the 15th chapter is dealing with Saul. And you remember those priceless lines where he says, what the Lord wants is uh, not sacrifice and burnt offering, but what he wants is obedience. Because he said, rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Now, uh, I uh, turned to look at that in the Hebrew and I had problems because the Hebrew is sort of uh, very cryptic. Uh, the Hebrew says, for the sin of divination, rebellion. And in Hebrew fashion, oftentimes you will have the object first or the end of the sentence first. The sin of, of divination, rebellion. And the evil of idolatry, and really what it is, is evil and teraphim, idols, evil and idols, which is usually translated the evil of, is a word which doesn't occur a great many times in the Old Testament. It's from a Hebrew root, patsar. And the verb here is a hithil infinitive. And what it says, an evil and idolatry, is to push. P-U-S-H. Very bluntly, that the sin of divination Rebellion and pushing is evil and idolatry. Do you know any pushy people? Now that took me back to Moses. It's interesting the way these strings go, isn't it? Do you know the only criticism of the Old Testament? Only one thing held against him. The Hebrews were complaining in numbers. Moses, you got, at least we'd go to bed at night with something in our stomachs and not, our bodies not crying for thirst, with thirst for water. And you will remember that, uh, the Lord said, I'll bring it out of that rock. So you speak to the rock and, uh, it will flow. Now, it's an interesting thing what happened. What was a problem between Israel and God? Moses made a problem between himself and Israel. Did you hear me? I'm trying to hear myself. <laughs> I'm trying to hear what I'm saying. Moses took a problem that was between Israel and God and personalized it and said, you bunch of rebels. And that's what the Hebrew says, you rebels. Now you can catch the tone in his voice, you've rebelled against God. And so he struck that rock and God said, Moses, you injected yourself into this and muddied the picture. You see, you made it a battle between you and Israel their problem is me, not you, and you need to stay out of it. There's that pushing, as you see. 
we get ourselves in the way of God and we begin to act when God is perfectly capable of taking care of himself and his issues and he wants them clean. And you know, it's a whale of a lot better when you keep yourself out of it. You get into sticky situations, sticky situations, messy situations, and you personalize them. Then you're no longer self out of it. And let God deal it and keep the issues where they are. The problem is God's problem, not ours. The battle is the Lord's. Now, if you can do that, then uh, it'll, God can do what he needs to do. And we will enjoy infinitely more of the blessings of God. Now, I don't know whether this makes any sense or not, but uh, somewhere or other the psalmist had gotten uh, the thought that uh, it's through meekness that the battle's going to be won. It's through that kind of brokenness and not through our power plays that the battle's going to be won. Part of what he had seen and had in his mind was we had a man who was that way David, and uh, I've learned from him. Now, we, of course, don't know who wrote. Nobody, most of the scholars don't suggest David being related to Psalm 119, but it's hard to think that whoever wrote one of them know about David and uh, the one who gave so much of the Psalms to us. But now, uh, while I was doing that, I came across an expression which is uh, in, the, the, in the Hebrew impressed me, uh, reading it in a way that the English did not. I think it is the ideal that stands behind David as to how he needed to relate to God. It is not used particularly in terms of David, but it is used again and again of his successors. And it is set up as the standard as to what a king is supposed to be. Uh, turn with me, if you will, in your Old Testament to 1 Kings 8. You will remember that this portion of the book of 1 Kings is telling about uh, the construction of the temple and bringing of the ark. The early part of chapter 8 tells about the bringing of the ark to the temple. And then in the middle of that chapter, or almost toward the middle of it, you get Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple. I want you to come down to the close of his prayer of dedication. Let's start reading with verse 56, if you will. Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. But your hearts 
must be fully, fully devoted, fully committed. I've got an NIV here, and what it says is, but your hearts must be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commands as at this time. Now, it's interesting that the Hebrew of that is fully committed or perfect. It has to be, the Hebrew is lev shalem, and lev is the Hebrew word for heart. The B is pronounced like a V after a vowel. Do you know any Hebrew word related to this? Shalom, which you know in Israel is a greeting, but also is, they say it at the beginning of a conversation at the end, shalom, but it is also the Hebrew word for peace. It may be the Salem in Jerusalem, but anyway, it has to do with peace. He says, but your heart must be a heart of But the interesting thing is, peace is not all that is contained in that word. Let me, uh, well, with that in mind, let me make another comment, and then I'll come right back to uh, uh, what is the meaning of the word shalane. If you look at 11.4, you'll notice something about Solomon. Look at 11.4. See, the King James translated, what you've got in the Hebrew is, his heart was not lev shalem. It was not a heart of peace with his God. Now, so that Solomon set it up as a pattern for his people, and then he didn't live by it himself. Now, you will notice, if you will go through Kings and Chronicles, you will find, not with every king, but again and again, this term used as a standard of reference. This is what a king was supposed to be. And David was the model for this. Now you know enough to know that there was a day in David's life when his heart wasn't perfect, wasn't shalem toward God. And he got involved, he got into trouble and his kingdom suffered tremendously for it. But a good portion of his life, it was, it was I've come as I, as I uh, have lived with this. You know, after his concept of Christian perfection, because he read out of a King James Bible, and the King James Bible in these passages for this term, and there's another term used in other portions of the Old Testament more commonly, tamim, like when it says, and uh, Abra- hey, God says to Abraham, walk before me and be thou perfect, Tamim, and it says of Noah that he was perfect in his generation, Tamim, the NIV translates those uh, those expressions, those cases, blameless, he was blameless, or walk before me and be thou blameless, he says to Abraham, but in the, in the history books of Kings and Chronicles, in dealing with the kings, it's a pattern that is drawn from David's life, and it is the Lave Shalane. Now let me... Uh, give you, do a little linguistic study on the Hebrew root shalom from which we get the word shalom. If you look at the Phoenician, uh, the Brown Driver and Briggs Dictionary gives us the meaning for the verb to complete or to requite. To finish something 
or to get a debt settled. <laughs> if you will look at the Arabic, you will find that in its first form, it means to be safe, to be secure, to be free from fault. But if you look at the causative, the fourth form you will find, it means to resign, to submit oneself, and especially to submit oneself to God. Do you know that's where the word Muslim comes from? Muslim is a passive participle, and it means a submitted one. And uh, Islam itself is the infinitive of that form. Islam is submission. So when you begin to talk about a heart that is shalem, that is the Semitic, in the Semitic heritage as to what the, that, that word means. When you get to the Assyrian, uh, shalamu, it means to be complete, to be unharmed, and there you begin to get, tended to take it, and you get paid, a debt that's paid. You don't owe anymore. That's clean, cleared. The books are cleared on that. It's finished. When you get to the Aramaic, shalem, it means to be complete, and if it's finished, to be safe. If you uh, come to the Hebrew, it means it is used of the finishing of the temple. When they finished it, they said, this is the verb they used to say it has been completed. Nehemiah uses it of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. It is used in Isaiah when he's speaking about a day when time will be no more. It will have ended. You get uh, one form of the Hebrew verb, the, the, the P-A-L, and it means complete or finish. It means to make safe, to make whole, to make good, to restore, to pay vows, to requite, to recompense, to reward. Uh, it, uh, it, it develops that idea all the way through in its usages where you get finished, complete, done. Now let me tell you why I'm interested in that. And here is one of the places where I think we who stand in the Wesleyan tradition find ourselves feeling differently from many in the more Reformed tradition. That is that it is possible for a person to come to the place where he's got a heart that in its consecration and in its devotion is finished. It's completed. And a person doesn't have to die to get there. Die physically. But what he does have to do is die the way Maxidunum told us yesterday about his monk friend. You'll remember they stretched him out on the place where his casket would be and they put the cowl over him and they told the bells that this man's life, his own life, living for himself was over and from this point on he was to belong wholly and completely to God. I think that's the kind of thing that you've got in the standard here. Because let me ask you, is any kingdom safe when the king's heart is divided? Is any parish safe when the pastor's heart is divided? Is any family safe 
when the Father's heart is divided. There are some passages in the Old Testament that speak about people who have, interestingly enough, a lave and a lave, which is a rather dramatic way of talking about a divided heart, isn't it? Now, here is the heart of peace. There's something remarkably freeing when you come to the place where you say, Lord, I take my hands off my life. I'll quit my pushiness. <laughs> I'll quit trying to manipulate. I'll quit trying to get what I want. Be the determiner of my destiny. I'm in your hands and in yours alone. Now, I think that's what you have in that passage in the psalm where he said, I came to the place where I quit fighting the things that God let come in my life that were negative. The opposition, the pain, the disgrace, all these things. That's God's problem. I will accept those things as from him. And I find that there is a peace inside me. And then I find that out of the very negative circumstances of life that the psalmist experienced, he said, I find the goodness of God. I guess one of the things that has uh, troubled me in our generation is that we've been more interested in Do you hear me? The ideal here is not acts. It is character. Where a person comes to the place where it is settled, God will have supreme control in his life. Then the acts of his life come out of that. And because he has put his life totally in God's hands, when David had now, can you imagine the peace that gave to David when God gave the kingdom to him? When God gave the kingdom to him and the problems came, he could look up and say, Lord, <laughs> it's not my problem. <laughs> I didn't pull a string to get here. You put me here, and now it's going to be interesting to see how you're going to solve this one. <laughs> so I think I understand a little more of why the Hebrew expresses it this way. Now, I think biblically it is possible through grace. How do you ever get there? You'll never get there on your own. The only way you and I will ever get a heart of peace to walk through the conflicts that he has for us is to have him do a work of grace within our hearts that sets us free. And we, have, and we can leave it as an issue between God and life instead of getting ourselves mixed into it. Now, that's been pretty scattered the way I've presented it. I haven't gotten that uh, under control yet. But uh, at least maybe that will give you uh, something of the ideas that are floating in my head about uh, the Old Testament standard. It is a heart wholly devoted to God, not by human consecration, but by grace and grace alone.